Hello, it's Julie Bindle. Today I'm speaking with Debbie Hayton. He transitioned and identified as transsexual when he was already married with children. Stephanie has spoken out about the effect it's had on her having a husband who then claimed to be a woman. Now, Debbie has a book out and in this book he speaks very clearly about autogynophilia and about the fact that he has since re-evaluated the notion that he was trapped in the wrong body. Which means, of course, that trans activists have come after him and he has also been criticised, I think, in many respects, fairly and reasonably, by feminists such as myself. But it's an interesting interview because Debbie speaks very candidly about his views and I think, in some ways, quite contradictory. Have a listen. Let me know what you think. Debbie, it's good to talk to you. Yes, good to talk to you, Julie. It's been a turbulent few weeks for you. Your book's just out, which we're going to discuss, obviously. And I've caught you at a very busy time. So great that we could find the time to sit down and have a bit of a conversation about life, really, and the gender wars and anything else that comes up. Well, yes, it's been a busy time with the book. I'm busy at school as usual. And the online kerfuffle over the last few days has just been remarkable. Okay, so tell me about it, because obviously I followed it and there's a very interesting and I think helpful long article by Andrew Doyle, who we both know, who's a great free speech advocate um, in Unheard, which goes through his experience of being piled on for not being pure enough, as he would argue. So why don't we start from that? And then I want to go back through your life and how you got to be sitting here, a newly published author, talking to me about your book. Well, it seems to me we keep talking about two sides in a debate. And what are the two sides? But I think when you dig dig under it, there are two sides. One side is trying to find truth and trying to find what trying to learn what's going on, perhaps find solutions. And the other side is interested in fighting a battle and fighting and uh, finding the community that comes from that, like football supporters. You know, we we do that as human beings. Uh, so I, I see what's going on there. You know, I, I look at that, and whether the uh, attacks against me are coming from trans activists or uh, gender critical feminists, it feels pretty much the same. It feels like uh, we have our ideas, Debbie, and we don't want you sharing yours because you may challenge things that we, uh, we, we, we hold to be very precious. Well, tell me first of all about your life, about how you came to identify as, well, you can give me the language, transsexual, cross-dressing, autogynophiliac. Just talk me through what happened. Well, you only have your own your own experience to go on. You know, we only have one childhood. That's the only childhood I knew. And uh, throughout childhood, I, I struggled with uh, feelings that I've perhaps uh, put words on as wanting to be a girl. Uh, those uh, it was strong. It was it was persistent. I could keep it. I could keep it down. I could uh, I could keep it hidden. But it ne- it never went away. There was definitely something there which I uh, I was. Uh, 
I was very much aware of, but it was the emotions that came with it. There was a feeling, huge feeling of shame about this. This was not the sort of thing that boys should want to do to be a girl. You know, I knew that. I don't think anybody ever taught me it, but the, those feelings were very strong. But it was something I was able to keep hidden uh, for years. I'm sure that people uh, struggle with all sorts of uh, mental conditions down in down in their psychology. And we just basically got to get on with life. We've got to uh, play our part in society. We've got to uh, find work, raise our get married, raise our children. We've all got to do those things. But what what did it for me was when I found out that well, I knew that people were transitioning. I, I'd read about April Ashley's transition, you know, when I was when I was a child, and it, it it sort of I found the story tantalizing, but it was just completely out of my experience. But what did it for me was the internet and chat groups on the internet, uh, forums on the internet, where I learned that other teachers, other engineers, other medics, you know, medics, people who were pretty much like me were transitioning. And the feeling of, I guess, envy, jealousy, that these people were doing something that I desperately wanted to do since I was very small, but not been able to do, suddenly it became overwhelming. You know, it's one thing to tell yourself that this, this can't be done, so you've got to get on with life, and something completely differently when you see other people are just doing it. Yeah, but I, what don't... the argument could be here, and obviously as a feminist, I'm very invested in looking at male sexual behaviour. Yeah is that this is a kink, that this was all related to sexual desire and that your transsexual awakening was actually exacerbated by or even kind of helped along by pornography. I mean, did you access what they call sissy porn during the time that you were reaching adolescence and thinking about cross-dressing and yourself as perhaps female I didn't know it existed seriously you know I had no idea that sort of thing was exi existed I grew up in the 1970s and 1980s I was aware that there were top shelf magazines but that was it so no I'd ne I had no idea that any of this actually existed uh, I do now, of course, you know, as an, as an adult, you're aware of what's going on. And I'm aware that there's those genres of pornography. But it's hardly, you know, I just I don't get the uh, assertion that pornography causes the wrong sort of pornography causes this. Uh, perhaps pornography might reveal it if, if somebody is, is repressing uh, uh, these, you know, th this sexuality, I guess they may go searching for that pornography. But the idea that the wrong sort of pornography causes some people to be gay, other people to be AGP, I think is ludicrous. Well, I wouldn't argue that. I think that pornography can definitely play and does play a huge part in boys' development. For example, it grooms them, for want of a better term, into only being able to get sexually aroused at the idea of women being subjugated, abused, harmed, raped. And so my question is, if you were developing autogynephilia, which you've written about in your book and you've spoken about previously, and you're the only trans-identified male that has done that, from what I can see, in the UK, was it that you were 
confusing what is effectively a kink, a sexual kink, with the notion that you were trapped in the wrong body. If you could just separate those two things out for me, or if you think they're the same, explain to me how you think they're the same. Well, I think it's the word kink is pejorative in this in this situation. We see kink as being uh, bad or, or deviant. What well, I hang see on a is... minute. Hang on. No, the blue fringes don't. <laughs> the, the alphabet supers don't. They they see kink as a proud word. They see it as very similar to queer. In fact, if you're a kinkster, you're queer. If you're queer, you're often a kinkster. So it's used in a kind of identitarian way. Well, maybe I'm clouded by my history growing up in County Durham in the 1980s. <laughs> uh, but <clears throat> look, looking at this, I think uh, the argument that if boys pick up one sort of porn, it will uh, it will shape their sexuality one way. And if boys pick up another another foot form of porn, it will shape their sex sexualities another way. I think I, I think I can see where you're coming from with that. But what I would argue is that boys will choose the sort of porn which uh, matches with their uh, developing sexuality. And it may uh, it may uh, <clears throat> uh, magnify it, it may uh, change it, but it's based upon something which, it, which is there. I don't think, for example, that straight boys are going to spend a lot of time looking at gay porn and, and uh, boys who will turn out to be gay will spend a lot of time looking at straight porn. And I think that's the same case with, with autogynophilia. Now, where does autogynophilia fit into this? How I've tried to uh, describe it in the book is an inverted form of male heterosexuality. When I get accused of what autogynophilia is, I think I sometimes think you could just be describing uh, male heterosexuality here. So uh, where I see this is, it is, as Blanchard as Ray Blanchard suggested, uh, a, a sexual attraction to the thought of oneself as a woman. And then that leads to this uh, this need to uh, feminize that body to bring it into line with with my desires. And I say in the book about how you get this short circuit is the uh, is the uh, term I use and the the picture I use. So you get a short circuit of of male sex of male heterosexuality there. But that's what it is. And when you look at and you criticize autogynophilia, you can be looking at and criticizing male heterosexuality. Uh, the difference which is... I do, which I do, of course, yeah. in the way that male heterosexuality um, plays out under patriarchy. So not per se, or we'd be just refusing to accept the humanity of half of the planet. What feminists like me would do when we criticise male heterosexuality is the way that permission is given to those born with a penis to abuse and dominate women, which isn't a natural state of affairs. Well, I, I'd argue it's wrong, but uh, whether it's whether it's natural or not, you're looking at whether it's uh, it's an instinct which is within us. I think socialization here is really important, and socialization as a positive uh, as a positive measure as a society, we need to control that male instinct and uh, channel it for good, which uh, which we which hopefully we, we do. OK, so let's unpick that, because that's a really interesting point. If you are growing up as a boy and I'm talking about you, not one, and you feel the desire to dress in what you would call female clothing, is that the same as those that argue? And I reject this argument. I reject the diagnosis of transsexuality. But 
is it the same as arguing that you are trapped in the wrong body and therefore the answer to that would be to pose as female which is where the female clothing comes in I think it's just an outworking of male heterosexuality. I don't think we're born in the wrong body. I think we're only born in our own bodies and we have to cope with our own bodies and our own psychology. And we, ne we need to learn how to uh, accept that and, uh, and develop it. Uh, and I think one of the tragedies of all this is that we've slapped this born in the, bo born in the wrong body uh, label on, on the situation. And uh, lots of people have been fooled into thinking that and never understood their own condition. So now, when going... you talk about a trans child, do you believe in the concept of a transgender child? Well, I'm careful to use the word transgender identified child. I think children can identify as trans and I think we need a label. We need a, a word to uh, describe that. And transgender identified uh, child, I would use trans child. I'm uh, I'm more cautious about and I would reject that word because it gives the impression that this is something uh, real, it sets them apart. These are just children uh, who, are, who uh, are struggling with uh, their sexuality, their uh, sex, uh, and I, try, I even try to avoid using the word gender. I think we'd be better off without it. Well, I, I agree. Um, now, Janice Turner's article that was published in The Times, pegged on your book, caused a huge amount of consternation. Tell me why. I think it was, uh, well, she'd used female pronouns for me. I think that was the big thing, that uh, female pronouns had been used, and that was considered to be uh, unacceptable. And what's your view on that? I think pronouns should describe. There are words which you use to actually describe the people that we see. And, uh, and they have to convey some meaning. And Janice Turner was using the using that pronoun to convey some meaning to her audience who were reading the Times. She could have used male pronouns. She could have used female pronouns. I really couldn't care what pronouns people use for me. I really couldn't, Julie. But if she'd used male pronouns in that piece, it wouldn't have conveyed the message to the Times readers and her audience uh, that she wanted. So uh, it would have caused confusion. But you don't see yourself as a woman, though, do you? So why would anyone use female pronouns for you well we we use female pronouns to convey a message you know the uh, the woman in my sat nav when i'm driving the car i would use female pronouns for her but that's just a piece of technology ships can be she the, these pronouns convey a meaning and that's that's the issue i think we're uh, we're arguing over are a pronouns definitive does that pronoun define a woman or are pronouns descriptive? Does that pronoun uh, describe uh, what we're seeing or what we're talking about? Well, my view is that while we actually have um, oppression of women and girls by men and boys, while we have a sex class of women and girls and a sex class of men and boys, then pronouns are extremely important to use accurately. Because if we don't, then what we're saying is that our sex is irrelevant, which of course we can't say. Now, my position is this, I do not believe in transsexuality. I reject the diagnosis of being trapped in the wrong body. I don't believe that there are transsexual people. I think that there are people who are deeply disturbed by, maybe affected by body dysmorphia, which I'd love to talk to you about. And that the way to, to treat that is through talking therapies so that we all feel better in our bodies. I mean, girls and women are very used to not feeling right in our bodies. That, that's, that's called being female growing up. But 
but my position is that I will make a choice occasionally, such as with my friend Claudia, who transitioned um, from a, a gay man um, in the 1980s and has since lived as a woman, who, similar to you, says I'm not a woman, I'm a trans woman. And I will, of course, um, with Claudia, use pronouns, use Claudia's preferred pronouns, which is female pronouns. But I don't ever think of trans-identified males as female. And therefore, if I'm using female pronouns, which on occasion I will do out of politeness, it doesn't mean that I think they're either irrelevant or that I believe that you are a woman. So how, just, just dig deep and be honest, how does that make you feel when I tell you I don't see you at all as female, as a woman? Well, I don't see myself as female. So uh, we're in agreement there, Julie. So tell me what female clothing means to you, because this is another thing that has caused consternation. You've been accused of being sexually aroused whilst dressed as a woman, in inverted commas, amongst school children. I mean, that's a very, very harsh um, accusation, allegation to make. So how have you responded to that, if you have at all? Well, I haven't. Uh, I don't think there would. I don't think any good would come from engaging in debate on Twitter about those things. But when I go to school, I dress in clothes which are practical, which are comfortable, uh, we, in which I feel attractive. In this is this is the issue. I think as human beings, we all want to look attractive to other members of uh, members of society, and we all have our own views of what makes ourselves look attractive. So I'll wear clothes in which I feel comfortable and I feel attractive. But that's just like every other human being wears those clothes. And so I don't do think there's you, any difference. Do you dress in stereotypical female clothing in order to create a sexual excitement? Do you get turned on by dressing in stereotypical female clothing? Well, I don't know. I don't get, goodness gracious. No, I don't get turned on by wearing those clothes in any other way than I got turned on before I transitioned, perhaps putting on a clean shirt and, uh, and, and a tie that matched in order to, uh, in order to feel comfortable and, and, and feel attractive and that I felt I fit into society. That's what I tried to do then but and what now. Then, but what then does autogynephilia mean? Because my understanding, and I, I was um, lucky enough to be able to interview Ray Blanchard, who you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. Debbie, um, really, you know, interesting man, isn't he? And I met him in Toronto and we did an interview for my podcast, just as we're doing now. And he explained autogynephilia to me, which is a sexual excitement at imagining yourself as female. So where does that come in with your behaviour, with your clothing? If you're saying, which you have, and I'm glad that you have, that for many heterosexual men, this is um, about sexual excitement, imagining yourself female. Where does that happen for you? Because if it's not when you're dressed to go to teach in school, how is that in your life? In what way is that in your life? Well, I think there's more to this than erotic uh, attraction to yourself. It was Anne Lawrence, the uh, the male transsexual who developed uh, Blanchard's ideas, uh, called it uh, a romantic attachment as well. And uh, men wouldn't get married if there wasn't an erotic, well, few men would get married if there wasn't an erotic attraction to the woman that they marry. 
Uh, but over time, it settles into uh, into a, a romantic, ongoing uh, feeling of comfort with somebody else, and that's the same. That's the same way as autogynephilia seems to work for me. So, uh, although the idea of transition was, you know, that that was uh, erotic in its in its view. Uh, ten years later, goodness gracious, it's not as if uh, uh, you know heterosexual couples re retain that level of erotic further, but the a, a long-lasting uh, feeling of uh, romantic attachment uh, uh, is generated and carries on, and that's where I am. So, in other words, you've experienced bed death with yourself. Uh, probably yes, if you want to put it that way, yes. Have you ever identified as a lesbian? I mean, you're married to Stephanie, and I'm glad that we've heard from Stephanie recently. There was a piece written by her, um, which was very interesting, and I think we all appreciated it very much. So please pass that on, if you would, to Stephanie. Tell me, then, if you've ever identified as a lesbian. Uh, no, no, because I'm... Uh, even in those early days of transition, when I thought I was some kind of woman... Uh, I was not a lesbian because Stephanie was not a lesbian. And that was one of the issues which we worked through. Uh, some years later, we actually, you know, that question in a, in a documentary, which is really causes all sorts of fuss these days. That was a question we wanted to be asked was, are you a lesbian couple? Because we wanted it to make it absolutely clear that we're not. We're a heterosexual couple. I think you know which documentary I'm referring to. I, I do, and I haven't actually seen it for a long time, and I think I probably saw it before we met. So just tell tell us a little bit about that. Well, this was at a time when Stella O'Malley was putting together a programme for Channel 4 on child transition. So she interviewed, uh, I think there were six clips or seven clips in the programme of, uh, of different case studies, uh, most of which were children uh, thinking of transitioning, had transitioned and looking at the uh, looking at the situation around that she also uh, there was one clip of the uh, the meeting at uh, bristol where i think you were involved in that and that was to give some wider perspective to what was going on and the other one was an interview with myself and stephanie and what the aim was to show that uh, the idea that just uh, wait until you grow up and transition then uh, isn't a answer either. You know that's not that's not a that's not a get out answer either. Waiting until you grow up and transition also has its problems. So that's the reason that clip was included there. So it's an interview with me. It's an interview with Stephanie. We agreed. Well, we wanted three things from that. We wanted it to be honest. We didn't want to paint any uh, paint any uh, false picture of what was going on. We did want it to be clear that we were not a lesbian couple, which the viewers of Channel Four may have wondered. So it was important that that question was asked and then refuted. But the other thing just to say now is that people make all sorts out of that clip and about how people were looking at the time. There was about five hours of footage. And what I don't think the audience realizes is the pictures and the sound don't always add up. They don't always match up. So the sound is genuine, but it was clipped from different places. And then it was overlaid with pictures to create an artistic uh, effect. And it did. Uh, but there's so much read into that, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is ridiculous. And actually, I want to tell you about something that happened to me about 12 years ago. And it it was deeply upsetting. I think probably the most upsetting thing that's, that's ever happened to me since 2004, when I got um, started being attacked for my views on transsexuality and the like. 
which is that, you know, I was quite, quite on my own in this. And I was definitely the, the only high profile journalist and feminist that was speaking out at the time in the way that I was. And so I was desperately trying to build bridges and I had some debates that I actually quite enjoyed, um, instigated by me, for example, with Stephen Whittle, trans man, uh, we also with Susan Stryker, trans woman, and various others. I sat on panels. Um, I did uh, Skeptics in the Pub with Bethany Black and um, a couple of a, a trans identified man. So really tried desperately to reach out and talk about how we can move forward without it being as vile and vicious towards women, because it is not a two-way street as it was. Um, obviously, Miranda Yardley, um, who no longer identifies as a woman, but speaks about being a post-operative male. We also had some events, um, public events to do that. Now, I made a huge mistake in that I decided that I would do the same with Paris Lees, who is trans-identified, and in my view, the most vicious, nasty narcissist that I've met during this war. And I was completely on the back foot. I was exhausted. I was unconfident. I felt coerced. I felt bullied during this interview. And when Lees said to me, do you think of me as a lesbian? Because he'd explained that he was in a relationship with a woman. Um, I said, yes, I, 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 I mumbled and stumbled and said, well, yes, if you identify that way, deeply regret it and forgot all about it after that because Pink News was still doing their hit pieces on me and that became one of them that I'd talked to Paris Lees and Lees made as much of it as he could. Years later, some of the flying monkey extremists, the same ones that are going after you, brought this clip of just that, not all the rest of the interview where I was saying I thought transing children was child abuse, not all the rest of it where I said I refuse to accept a man identifying as a woman is a woman, but just that clip. And it's doing the rounds and every single time I refuse to acquiesce, to go along with their extremities, with quite frankly, their anti-trans bigotry, uh, the clip comes out and does the rounds again. And I see it as a form of blackmail. I see it as a form of sinister punishment. And they come after me constantly. And I'm just going on the record now to say, do your worst. I don't give a fuck. But why do you think that there is, obviously there are more nasty, vicious, trans-identified people than there are a small group of extremists that some people mistakenly think of as feminists. They're a tiny minority compared to the trans activist extremists. But why do you think there's so much purity and so much sadistic behaviour when it comes to this issue? And I'm talking about, of late, what's happened with the pylon towards Janice Turner, the pylon towards Andrew Doyle, and obviously the pylon towards me because I'm not pure enough despite how long I've been standing up for women's rights. What do you make of it? Well, you were talking about this long before anybody else realised, well, before many people realised, you know, and you were one of the first voices that I heard in this, Julie, 
and uh, I have huge amounts of respect for you. And I'm horrified by, you know, the, the bullying which you get from this, because it's fr often from people who have been uh, in this debate for a very short time. What I see is, sadly, it's, this is human nature. This is tribalism. This is gathering around an ideal. And uh, the time I've seen this previously was following Newcastle United. I used to follow Newcastle United. I used to have a season ticket. I would follow them. And there was once I was in the pen watching watching Newcastle. The opposite, the opposing team uh, scored a scored a goal. It was a fabulous goal. And I said to my friend, "What a cracking goal that was!" And you can imagine what the response was from round roundabout. It wasn't that uh, the goal was good or bad. The goal was scored by the other team, and that made it uh, something which had to be criticised and condemned. And it's that sort of behaviour, and that was amongst men, of course. That sort of behaviour there is what I see in other situations, and I see it's what going it's what's going on now. The answer, the question is not is this right or wrong, but are you on our team or are you on the other team? And that I think is unhelpful. Yes, indeed. I mean, obviously, for clarity, of course, I don't think a man can be a lesbian. I'm horrified at the idea of men identifying as lesbians. I have spoken out repeatedly about this. I deeply regret cowtailing, acquiescing, caving in to Paris Lee's bullying. But as feminists, we should understand how that happens with women. And I think one time out of several thousand examples of where I've stood up to them is pretty horrific to single out. But of course, men cannot be lesbians. And as a lesbian and as someone who has fought for lesbian rights, as someone who is a co-director, founder of the Lesbian Project, with Kathleen Stock, a project that we set up in order to make lesbians more visible, help lesbians feel better about ourselves, counter the bullying um, and take over from the rest of the rainbow soup. You know, I, I just think it's really important that lesbians have our own identity, that we have our own culture, that we're allowed our own spaces. And so men identifying as lesbians on dating sites and the like, it's an abhorrence. Tell me what you think of that. Well, of course it is. And uh, I, I can let you know that there are also groups and closed groups for trans people. And if uh, if if somebody who is not trans came into those groups, they'd be shown the door. And what what the sadness, what I think is that's just not that's that's not reciprocated. That's not that's not understood from the other side. And uh, surely in a liberal and pluralistic society of ours, we should be able to accept that these spaces are for lesbians, those spaces are for trans identified people. These spaces are for gay men. Uh, we may have other spaces which are more inclusive. You know, we may all go off to the pub afterwards and, sh and share a round of drinks. But uh, we need to be aware that uh, there are different spaces for different kinds of uh, kinds of discussion, different kinds of activities, and uh, and respect that. And if a group of lesbians say this is a lesbian space, then everybody else who is not a lesbian ought to accept that. The problem is that there are some people who think they're lesbians when they're not. And that's uh, that's an issue which uh, I guess you're having to grapple with. I mean, I I don't think that it's analogous to say that that trans people should exclude non-trans people, cis as some would call them, because I think that the power dynamic is significant. It would be like me saying, well, this is a white group and we can't have people of colour in it. I know that's not that's also not helpfully analogous, but I just want to, to make that point. But I take your general point. And I think that, you know, one thing um, that I would like to ask you is 
bearing in mind that you have been seen as an ally to women fighting this gender woo-woo, bearing in mind that you have sat on panels, including with me some time ago at, I think it was a Women's Place UK event, what aspects of trans identity, what aspects of trans ideology do you accept? Because you clearly reject some of it. Tell me what you do accept. Well, it's what you mean by trans ideology. This idea of being born in the wrong body, I reject. Uh, this idea that uh, a man can be a lesbian, I reject. Uh, this idea that uh, we all have a gender identity, I reject strongly. So I'm not, I'm not sure what parts of gender ideology uh, I would accept. I do think that uh, people can have a psychological compulsion to uh, present as the opposite sex. I believe that happens. That's that's a psychological compulsion. We can call it whatever you like. Uh, but the actual core of gender identity ideology that we all have a gender identity that uh, alone determines whether we're men, women or something else, I reject, I reject completely. So tell me about how the times persuaded you, or did they not have to persuade you to dress the way you did for that photo shoot with the makeup and the feminine clothes and the marigolds? What the fuck was with the marigolds? What were they playing at? And what were uh, you thinking when you said that you would do that? Did you sense trouble ahead? Uh, I sensed from that from that piece. I sensed there'd be trouble, whatever I did. If I'd posed there in a in jeans and a t-shirt with my hair tied back, tied back, there was going to be trouble. So I thought, what the heck? So, do you think that the marigolds were a good or bad idea? They're a good contrasting colour against the red suit. <laughs> but yes, I get what you I get what you're thinking. But there was going to be trouble anyway, Julie. So, do I thought... you think that the that this was adhering to a harmful sex stereotype that women are adversely affected by? That you were playing with the marigolds, and we're the ones. Women are the ones that are, you know, affected by that in a broader sense. Well, there's all sorts of issues which are going, which are which are going together there. Uh, at the time, it was a it was a colour contrast which I thought was interesting. I did, yeah, of course. When you're wearing the marigolds, you're going to be thinking, I wonder, I wonder what people make of this. There is, uh, <clears throat> there, 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 there is in, in me a provocative, playful spirit which thought uh, some people might get upset by this. But that that's that's just me. I've always been somebody who would. Uh, uh, I don't, you know, I do. I, I, I'm aware that my campaigning upsets people, and I don't, I don't, I, I, I prefer it to inform. But the, there's times when I just say, "Oh, stuff it," you know. Uh, How's it where... since you since you transitioned and began to identify as well as a trans woman? Uh, have you done more housework than you did before? Uh, it's it's hard to say, really. I, I do. We 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 divide. We we certainly divide the housework up. I would. I would. I guess it's like any married heterosexual couple. I will say I think I do my share, and Stephanie will uh, would say perhaps not. But uh, I don't think transition itself made any impact on that. I've been, you know, I've made the joke at times. I think I made the joke in the book that uh, if somebody's going to identify as a woman, then it might be helpful if they did the woman share the housework. But again, it's just uh, it's it's just looking for humour in a in a situation, which is which is what I tend to do. And. Do you think, because obviously your family has been through distress and pain, your children, Stephanie, as we've we've heard from you and from Stephanie more recently, 
do you regret transitioning? And I suppose the follow-on question from that would be, why don't you detransition? Well, what would I do to detransition? This, this, this is this is the issue, and I do I do discuss this in the book because I've come to the end. You know, I've come full circle in this, and what I what I say now is that if I knew in 2012 what I know now, I would not have I would not have transitioned. Uh, so therefore, you say, well, do you regret transitioning? And I don't because I can't imagine that I would have learnt what I know now had I not transitioned. Uh, transitioned. My grandmother used to say, tell me that I had to learn the hard way. Often, often when something had blown up in my face after being warned that it would, uh, one of the constant refrains from my childhood was, uh, "You had to learn the hard way, didn't you?" And I think that's that's the case now. So I've been through it to the other side. What what would it what would it mean to uh, detransition? Well, I could cut my hair, but I quite like my hair long. Uh, I could uh, wear stereotypically male clothes. I uh, could do that, but I feel, you know, I like I like wearing the clothes that I do. So it's restricting myself to clothes that I I, do, I don't wear. Uh, it would be very difficult in certain situations. And I, and I have to I'm, I'm not having any more surgery whatsoever. Contrary to some claims on uh, on social media, if I transitioned, if I detransitioned and I didn't have any, uh, if I didn't have a double mastectomy, I'd either have to wear a sports, a, a, a binder or very baggy clothes the whole time. Uh, swimming, what would be the case there? So I sort of tread the line as I do. I'm a, I'm a post-operative male transsexual, if you want, if you can accept that term. Uh, and I've worn the T-shirt that says trans women are men. And uh, which got me into uh, far more trouble in 2019 than anything's got me into trouble in my entire life did that T-shirt. And some would say, obviously, that by bringing out this book and by still referring to yourself as a transsexual, as opposed to a man that um, went through sex reassignment surgery, that this is causing harm to women. Now, I think every time anyone pushes forward or promotes gender ideology and certainly sex reassignment surgery or sex change surgery, as it was referred to previously, I think that causes harm. It further entrenches the notion that some men can be women, that some women have a, pe some, some women have a penis, etc. Do you feel responsible for promoting gender ideology? In what way? When? When I transitioned, I thought I was some kind of woman. I would not have transitioned if I uh, if I didn't think that I was some kind of woman. And if I hadn't transitioned, then my mental health would have been on a downward spiral to catastrophe. That's what I thought in 2012, and that's why I did it. But thankfully, at that time, I wasn't I wasn't in the public eye at all, and I spent the next four years in in obscurity. I really did. Uh, I was pleased about that because if if I'd been a campaigner then. I would be saying the things which uh, the, you know, the the trans transgender uh, lobby are saying now. Uh, I would have said that. It was listening to other people around 2016, 2017, uh, which really just stopped and made me think, what on earth is going on here? And I had a choice. I could have I could have carried on in obscurity, or I could pipe up and say, I think this is wrong, which is which is the decision which I took. Uh, there was all sorts going on at that time. What are your thoughts about the psychiatrist or whoever it was that diagnosed you, uh, put you forward for the um, 
surgery and what are your thoughts on the surgeon that performed that operation that removed your male gen genitals? Well, the psychiatrist who put me forwards was, uh, he, he didn't, there was, we talk about gatekeeping, there, was, there wasn't much. I, I went, I went to Charing Cross GIC knowing exactly what I wanted. And I answered the questions. I followed the script, which other people in the trans group I was in told me, you say this, you say this, you say this. And what, what was apparent to me was the psychiatrist's main concern was, was uh, protecting his own back. So he needed to get evidence on paper that I knew what I was doing. I wanted to do this. This was I was not being coerced into this. And uh, and quite frankly, once we'd answered those questions, we could then spend the rest of the sessions talking about the test match or other things as well. Once we got that evidence down there, we had to talk about something. Uh, so I I I think about that that uh, I went I went there knowing what I wanted, and I I played the game to get what I wanted, which is. A terrible indictment, isn't it, of the system of the unstoppable trans train that obviously we're trying to stop and of the dangers to vulnerable young people and vulnerable adults. I mean, this yeah. is to me, this is patriarchy on steroids. It, it is the most harmful men's rights movement that you would take a surgeon's scalpel and lifelong hormonal treatment to correct something which is a mental disorder. Well, two things, two two things, two things to add to that. Uh, really, yes, I, I wanted the hormones. I wanted the surgery. I, I got I got that referral. But the surgery, you can you can reduce. I sus I would say to uh, cosmetic surgery, and people have cosmetic surgery for lots of reasons because they think it, it makes them more comfortable with their own body. So although I, uh, you know, I regret going through the whole process of, tran of transition, that surgery in 2016 has made my body in such a way that I feel more comfortable with it myself. So, yes, it, it was profound surgery. But as a result, my body, I'm more comfortable. I'm more comfortable with my body now than I was beforehand, uh, in the same way that people may say the same about other cosmetic treatments. Do you ever miss your penis? Uh, when we go for those long country walks in the session after the pub, uh, about an hour after the pub, I certainly miss it. The, uh, however I put it, the, the factory fitted hosepipe attachment did have its uses. Uh, but no, I don't, I don't miss it. But going back to what you were saying about what was happening in that clinic, I went in there as a 44 year old man who had had, who was established in life. I'd had three children and then had a vasectomy. And quite frankly, if by that age, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, you know, th there was no helping me. But alongside me in that clinic were uh, 18, 19, 20 year olds. And that I, that concerned me. If I'd gone to the vasectomy clinic as an 18 or 19 year old and said, I want a vasectomy because I don't think I'm going to have any children, they would have sent me away. Now, when I went as a 35 year old saying I've had three kids and I've had enough, I've had all the children I want. Uh, they were quite happy to give me a vasectomy at that time. Uh, but we seem to have totally different rules when it comes to gender reassignment surgery, even though the result is the same, if not more profound. Would you join your voice to those of us that say that under no circumstances should we be performing sex reassignment surgery or issuing 
cross-sex hormones for body dysmorphia and other um, conditions, mental ill health? I would certainly say that for children. I don't think we should be uh, doing this for children. The uh, the years of 18 to 25, I'd want to talk to you about because the brain doesn't re doesn't reach full cognitive development until the age of 20 uh, until the age of 25. But beyond that, it's a matter of uh, liberty, allowing people to live lives and do and uh, and change their bodies as they wish. Uh, if you you know, there, there is, there is, there are campaigns to uh, ban cross, ban cross sex hormones and surgery, but I don't think, I don't think you're going to ban that. Certainly from the male to female side, because this is being driven by uh, this. Quite frankly, this is being driven by the male sex drive, which, as I've said elsewhere, is the uh, most powerful force known to man. And I think that this is obviously where we part company and where we disagree. Because I, under no circumstances, would ever uh, condone sex change, surgery and hormonal intervention. And for me, it's not about personal freedom and liberty. And I don't think that we can compare it to other forms of body modification. I think that it's directly harmful to the project to liberate women and girls. So I think it's harmful to us as a sex class. And this is why I would call for an absolute blanket, no, no ban on any sex change intervention. Okay, I would, I would say good luck on, uh, on the campaign. I think you're very right to make that campaign, but I would disagree in terms of saying that uh, if treatment improves the lives of individuals, then I think it would be wrong to withhold that. And in my case, uh, in my case, the uh, the treatment did improve my life in some ways, and I don't re I don't regret these. I don't regret the GRS. Uh, however, and this is something I've said elsewhere, the 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 drive for that treatment. The drive for that gender reassignment surgery was provided by the fact that it was there and it was available. And if it had not been available, then it wouldn't have been uh, it wouldn't have been so uh, tantalising and so uh, there, there wouldn't have been the same drive for it. I think I've described it somewhere as almost an iatrogenic condition in that the uh, the presence of the treatment drives the need for it. Debbie Hayton, it has been fascinating talking to you. Thank you, and once again, Julie, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you for listening. I hope you found that interesting. I certainly did. And it's what motivates me. Difficult conversations about difficult topics. I wish we had more of them. See you next time. <laughs>